Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with film editor Paul Hirsch. Mr. Hirsch has edited Sisters, The Phantom of the Paradise, Footloose, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Star Wars, Carrie, and the upcoming Warcraft movie. He has also edited The Source Code, which will be shown on Saturday, April 9th, 2016 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street. More later, on to the interview. We're showing the source code, and on the audio commentary, the director, Duncan Jones, described the movie as a non-linear storytelling. When you began to edit the movie, what were the problems you had to overcome to make a coherent movie? The script, in fact, was extremely well thought out. The trick in this particular project was that it was sort of like Groundhog Day as a thriller. We keep living the same period of time over and over and over again, and with small changes in each iteration of that time. That was by design, and when you watch the movie for the first time, you're thrown into a situation that you don't understand. As you watch the movie more and more, things become revealed to you as an audience that help you to understand what it is you've been watching. It's nonlinear in the sense that you're not clear that this this time that keeps repeating is, you know, what what larger time frame it's operating in. And there are time science fiction time paradoxes built into the film that prevent you from giving a clear answer to that question, whether there is a larger time frame in which this is all operating. It's, it's an intriguing film from, from an intellectual standpoint of trying to understand the rules of what's taking place in front of you. But I found that on re-watching, what I was really struck by was how much emotion there was in the film which I think contributes a great deal to its enjoyment. The source code is a thriller, and I was watching the documentary The Suspenseful World of Thrillers, and you stated, when I'm working on a thriller, I get to really employ aspects of manipulation using all the tricks and tools of my trade in a way that I sometimes don't get to employ in another genre. What tricks and and tools did you use in the source code? Well, the challenge in source code in particular was that there are two rules in editing that you must observe. And one is not to confuse the audience, and the other is not to bore the audience. So it's all right to be a little confused if the confusion eventually is resolved. But if you confuse the audience too much, they'll lose connection with the story and give up, and then they'll be bored. So the worst sin of all is to be boring. And there's a danger in repeating the same time period over and over that you might be boring. So the trick was to establish what's going on in terms of repeating the time. So, but once that's established, you need to go faster each time you go back to that same time period. And it gets to a point where it's happening extremely fast, and the images which are set up to remind the audience that we're seeing the same action over and over again, the the Coke can being opened up, the, the coffee being spilled, the fireball, and so forth, at its maximum happens in 
you know, in seconds. The eight minutes becomes seconds. So the trick was to go faster and faster each time you went back to the to the scene. I mean, there there are some cases where the we call them source codes. Every time we go back to the train is another source code. But some of the source codes are longer because he gets off the train and we explain more about what's going on. In thrillers, you create tension through the pace of the cutting and through the manner in which you reveal the information and how much you withhold. You withhold information, you reveal information, and it's, it's time-sensitive so that the editing of the film is critical in manipulating the time correctly. Also on the audio commentary, the director, Duncan Jones, stated that on the title credit sequence, you cracked what we needed to do. You cut between the city and the train. Could you discuss how you came up with that for the title credit sequence? The producer, Hawk Koch, called me and said, I'm sending a helicopter to uh, Chicago to get aerial shots of the train. Do you have any suggestions what else we might do? I had cut a picture called Ferris Bueller's Day Off that had also been shot in Chicago, and we had a sequence when Ferris is driving to the city and other sequences as well where we saw aerial shots of Chicago. Chicago, as we all know, is an architectural masterpiece as a city. I don't think it has any equal. People in New York will fight me on that, but I'm talking about American cities. The skyline of Chicago is spectacular. The skyscraper was invented in Chicago. So I said, why don't you get some shots of the city, you know? And I sent him a copy of Ferris Bueller to remind him of what I was talking about. So, because they had the helicopter for a whole day, and they kind of, you only get so many shots of the train, and then the rest of the day they went and got shots of the city. We hadn't decided on how to open the film or whether or not there was going to be a title sequence. And early in my career, I did a picture called Sisters, directed by Brian De Palma. And I had used some of Bernard Herrmann's music in the temp track, and as a consequence, he was hired to write the music for the film. And I was, it was my second film. Benny was a master of film composing and and filmmaking in general. He was more than just a composer. He was a filmmaker. And he said, he looked at this and he says, this film has to have a main title. He said, we need to prepare the audience psychologically for the experience they're going to have. And that's something that stuck with me. And I thought, it's the same thing with this film. We need to set up the tone of what's going to follow. Around the time that I was thinking about this main title issue, I saw a film by Roman Polanski entitled The Ghost Writer. And I was struck by the music in the film, which was written by Alexander Desplat. And by coincidence, the assistant that I... With the, our film, Source Code, was shot in Montreal. By coincidence, my assistant editor, who was a local hire had to be we couldn't hire an american assistant in canada the fellow that i hired was had been an assistant on ghostwriter so i asked him to get me a copy of the score which was not out yet and he did and i thought wow this is the perfect main title for our film 
the the soundtrack. So then I started cutting together shots of the train, intercut with shots of the city, and uh, that's how it evolved. The the score for Ghost Rider reminded me very much of Herman's music, and has wonderful uh, tension in it, and as well as very bold instrumentation, which was typical of Herman. Uh, you've just answered my next question, too, so I'll go on to the next one. Okay. I've read on Internet Movie Database that you and Duncan Jones are working together on Warcraft. Can you tell me anything about it? What can I tell you about it? I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement oh. when I signed on to the project. <laughs> the, 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 what I, I think what I can tell you is that the film is based on the video game World of Warcraft, and is very much inspired by the game. If if you're a gamer, uh, this is the film for you. I think I am not a video game player, and I felt it was my responsibility to be the voice on the film of the audience member who is not familiar with the game. Because it's important that the film work for people who are not familiar with the game as well as people who know it. It's a fantasy film. It involves the elements of the game, which, in, which are a war between mythological Stone Age kind of pale, you know, paleontological warfare versus medieval warfare. So there's a lot of swords and, and uh, spears and shields and clubs and things of that sort. But... It's also uh, a world in which magic plays a role, and there are many different characters on each side. So it's a very complicated film from a storytelling standpoint, and it's also a very complicated film from a visual effects technological standpoint. We employed uh, a lot of motion capture in the making of the film, and it's really at the very cutting edge of what visual effects can do. You've successfully collaborated not only with Duncan Jones, but with such directors as Brian De Palma, Taylor Hackford, John Hughes, Herbert Ross. They all make different kinds of movies. What makes a good collaboration between director and editor? That's an interesting question I've never been asked before. All the directors you mentioned are people with whom I worked several times. I did 11 pictures with De Palma. I did four with Herbert Ross. I did a couple with the others. If you're working with a director and the picture succeeds, then that helps create a a bond between director and editor. But I think my approach when I'm working with someone new is to try to contribute my own sensibility to the materials that comes in. And then there's always a period of adjustment later on after I presented my version of the film, or a version of the film, not necessarily mine, but one that is delivered by me unaided. It's not necessarily the film that I would, you know, the final version of the film that I would choose, but it's what I consider to be the best starting point for cutting the film down. Once I present that with my own sensibilities built into it, then there's always a process of adjustment to make changes to accommodate the director's sensibilities to make the picture conform more to those than to mine. 
but the best collaborations, I mean, I think all the people that you mentioned were with directors who feel comfortable giving me the freedom to operate on my own at first and to see what I come up with. So I think the secret to a good collaboration between director and editor, now that I think about it, is for the director to give the editor the freedom to fail and let them try cutting it as they see best and then making adjustments subsequently. When I first worked with Herbert Ross on Footloose, Herbert was the very, you know, he was a very celebrated director. He was the go-to studio director of, of his era. And he had directed uh, many films with multiple Oscar nominations. And uh, he, he had many of his actors win Academy Awards for acting. And he was very celebrated. And I know he was, in fact, in retrospect, I think he was the director with whom I've worked who understood acting better than any of the others. That said, when I started working with him, he was operating in Utah. They were shooting the picture in Utah, and I was to stay in Los Angeles. And I said to him, when, when you watch dailies, do you want somebody to sit next to you to take notes about which takes you prefer? And he said, oh, just use whatever you want. He said, I have a very good memory, and if there's anything missing from the cut, I'll ask for it. So that was fantastic, because it gave me the freedom to use my own judgment about all the material. You know, obviously we did four pictures together, so uh, he liked what I did and uh, for the most part. And like I say, there's always this period where you adjust the picture to reflect the director's sensibilities more closely. The first movie you edited was Hi Mom, directed by Brian De Palma. And yes. Hi Mom was an underground movie very loose all over the place. Your yes. next collaboration with Brian De Palma was Sisters, a yes. thriller, very tight. You were working within a structure. Did Brian De Palma ever discuss why he went from making these social comedies or underground films to thrillers? I think that Brian had always had ambitions to do, you know, sort of macabre, macabre films or thrillers, or that, that sort of thing. Greetings and Hi Mom, which were early films that he directed, were produced by my brother, which is how I got my start, actually. My brother was 26, I was 23, or he was even younger than that when he produced Greetings. I think he must have been 23 or 4 himself. And Greetings was sort of a minor hit, and I was just learning how to edit at the time. And uh, I cut the trailer for it, and Brian and I met, and we hit it off. And he hired me to do Hi Mom. So Hi Mom, I think the budget on Greetings was about $36,000. And then Hi Mom, which is originally entitled The Son of Greetings, had a budget of about 100000 I believe, which even accounting for inflation was a very low number. Subsequent to that, Brian got a job in Hollywood, uh, a studio picture at Warner Brothers called Get to Know Your Rabbit where he had a big cast. He had Orson Welles and he had Tommy Smothers and, you know, big names in the cast. And uh, I think he always had ambitions to make Hollywood movies. He was subsequently fired from Get to Know Your Rabbit because he got into some struggles with some of the other more powerful people in the project. And he came back to New York and he 
wrote this Hitchcock-inspired thriller, and Ed Pressman raised the money to produce it. So I think that Greetings and Hi, Mom, the sort of underground films, they were co-written by my brother, Charles, and I think they reflected somewhat of his sensibility in addition to Brian's, whereas the later films were more purely Brian. You were given sole credit on The Phantom of the Paradise with montage, and um, Taylor Hackford was raving about your montage work in Ray. Could you discuss the creation of montage sequences? Yeah, well, the the credit I had on, on Phantom of the Paradise was because I directed the montage. It was a slow number, and the assignment was, we need a montage while the Phantom is writing a love song. So that's that's a little. That was sort of challenging to think how to illustrate somebody writing, which is a very internal activity, of course. So my approach was that to illustrate it by showing the object of his love, Jessica Harper, as well as him writing the. And then I had I had uh, there was a very famous, at least to to uh, students of film, famous filmmaker named Slavko Vorkopich. And Vorkopich was considered the master of the montage. And he was a an avant-garde filmmaker on his own, but he's also hired by the Hollywood studios in the 30s and 40s to create montages for their films. He was a film theorist who had made some extraordinary uh, insights into perception and how to create illusions by you know running the film backwards in many cases and multiple layers of images i actually had taken a course from someone who had been his assistant who was recreating lectures that vorkopich had given uh, many years earlier vorkopich had passed away by the time i came along but he was very influential and did some extraordinary things in the films that he worked on so in the montages, you try to create an impression from a series of images that are not connected in time, but the aggregate gives a sense of, it varies in its intent, you know, but it's a way of compressing time so that you can create a depiction of something that takes a very long time and much less time. So you accelerate the the whole process of how long an event takes place. I approach montages by starting out with a piece of music. Uh, I find this is essential. When you have music running against film, it sort of liberates the audience from any realistic constraints. You can put music against film, and then somehow, it's as if you're cutting a balloon free and free to rise up. You know, you. You put music against film, and you can do all sorts of things against the music, things that you wouldn't accept otherwise. There's a sequence in Ray in which there's a number being performed. Actually, it starts it starts in a rehearsal room. Ray starts the song, and then we cut to a nightclub where the song continues and is being performed live in a nightclub. And the song is called What Kind of Man Are You? And... The singer's a woman, and intercut with this song is a series of 
of scenes of Ray being untrue, unfaithful to this woman and starting a relationship with another woman. And the events that take place during the song take place over two or three days. And we keep cutting back to the song as it's being sung in the nightclub. And by the end of the song, we've seen events that took place over many days, but it all happened in the three, three and a half minutes that the song takes place. And yet the audience doesn't question that. How could this be? How could this three and a half minutes of real time be intercut with three days of non-real time? But you just accept it because the music makes it possible. It creates another worldly kind of atmosphere. I did a picture with Herbert Ross called The Secret of My Success. It's funny, when I tell people that it was number one at the box office five weekends in a row, they can hardly believe it, but it was a different sort of distribution pattern in those days. But that picture had a lot of montages in it, and I always chose a piece of music to cut to that would eventually have to be replaced by the film's composer, but it gave a sense of tempo that, that worked for, for, the, for the action. Fan of the Paradox is a film I really enjoy, and I wanted to ask, this seems to be a mixture of an underground film, very loose, and it has yes. thriller aspects, very structured, and it's a musical. Yes. In the editing room, how did you strike a balance? Well, you, you, I mean, the, the nature of the film is first established in the writing, and then secondly in the shooting. So when I get the material, you, you try to cut the best version of what this, what this film was intended to be. So if it's meant to be thrilling, you try to make it as thrilling as possible. If it's a musical number, you try to make it as entertaining as possible. And if it's comedic, you try to make it as funny as possible. When you get the whole thing and you look at it all together, then you think, oh, well, gee, you know, this is a little too violent for the rest of the movie. Or I've never had anyone say, gee, this movie is too funny. You know, <laughs> uh, in fact, I've been in meetings with studio executives where I've been working on a comedy, and they say, "Do you think you could make it funnier?" <laughs> as if, as if we hadn't thought of, you know. And I thought, I smacked my forehead. I thought, "Oh, what a brilliant idea! Make it funnier. Why didn't I think of that?" You know. The balance on Phantom of the Paradise—it's a bit, you know, helter skelter in its own way. It had several influences, you know. Um, the Faust story and the Phantom of the Opera story. And then there was sort of a history of rock and roll sort of going on at the same time. So, I don't know, it just it, it turned out to have its own peculiar quality. It was a, it, it was a disastrous uh, failure when it first opened. But about a year ago, there was a 40th anniversary cast and crew screening at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood, and the place was sold out. And I attended, and it was the kind of screening that we had dreamed about 40 years ago, but hadn't taken place. But it was it was very strange. It was like it was like living a dream. It was uh, I don't know how to describe it. It was it was the most successful screening of that movie that anyone could have imagined, and that what we had you know what we had hoped for when it opened, but it was thoroughly rejected at the time so I guess I guess it was ahead of its time there were several places in the world where 
it was a hit right from the beginning. I believe it opened in a theater in Paris and ran there for 10 years. Curiously, in Winnipeg, Canada, it's very popular, and they have an annual Phantom Palooza or something. Uh, they have a festival around uh, screenings of the film every year. So there are places where it was hailed from the start, but it's it's definitely an unusual film. I mean, the, the Phantom story is a whole other... There were, there were legal complications when it was first brought out, so we had to recut the film to satisfy the the lawyers. It resulted in some brutalization of the film aesthetic, so that you know the cuts we were forced to make were just really nasty, and uh, you know the technology for visual effects was was very primitive at the time, and there were things that we wanted to do that we could only do in a kind of a crude, rudimentary way. So it's hard to look at the film without seeing the, the scars, at least for, you know, I know for Brian and for me, it's, it's very difficult, but people are not that aware of them, so I guess I guess it goes, goes down okay. There's a movie, you didn't edit this movie, but it's called The Last Tycoon, but in this yes. the movie, the studio head, Monroe Stark, tells the editor of the film Two people at the sneak preview complained that Morgan's fly was open half the picture. Has that ever happened to you where a director or studio head said, there's a mistake of some nature and you have to fix it or check it out? And could you give an example if it has? Um, well, we're always getting notes from people who are you know, producers or executives on the film. They're not usually continuity mistakes. Sometimes they are, but... Uh, I mean, I, I consider that kind of stuff trivial. It's not really, you know. Uh, I call those, you know, when I, when I see articles in, on the internet about, you know, the glass was full in this shot, but then the reverse angle, the glass is, you know, half empty. Like on North by Northwest, there's a scene with Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint on the train, and they're cutting back and forth between one medium shot and the other. And if you look at the level of the water in the glass, it keeps changing. But, you know, that thing, I call that, you know, getalife.com. You know, who cares about that kind of stuff? <laughs> it's, 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 not, it's not important. It's, you know, it's, I guess people have fun finding these things. But what you really want is, you know, you want to touch people's hearts. The visual and audio aspects of filmmaking are only... It means they're not the end. You're not playing to the audience's eyes and ears. You're playing to the audience's heart and gut. So the, the eyes and the ears are just a way to get to that gut. Most successful films affect people in emotionally, and uh, that's what you aim for. The ending of a movie that affected me extremely visceral is the ending of The Fury. And could you discuss the conception and editing of... John Cassavetes' characters will essentially exploding. Right. Well, <laughs> I was I was working on Star Wars, and uh, I was in Los Angeles. I was based in New York at that time, so I was in Los Angeles. And Brian De Palma called me and said, "Let's have lunch. I want to tell you about this film I'm doing next. It's called The Fury." And he described that, you know, over lunch at Musso and Frank's, this famous Hollywood landmark. He described to me. <laughs> this film and he says and you know and at the end Cassavetes explodes 
And I thought, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is... Okay, so... I thought, this is what you want to make? You want to make a film about a guy exploding? Okay, all right, so... But I've, you know... Brian, I had done five films with Brian up to that point, and he had been instrumental in me getting the job on Star Wars. I didn't feel it was possible for me to turn my back on him. The Fury is not the kind of film I really enjoyed doing. I mean, the horror and, you know, sort of graphic violence are not things that are that are me. You know, I do them, but I much more relate to to a film like Ray or the you know or the film or footloose you know where i guess i'm i'm just not that into horror and that sort of thing or you know star was a fantasy and uh it's more more up my alley it's i don't i don't really go for the really dark stuff but you know here i was with brian and he had helped me so much and he was my mentor and he he uh validated me and he empowered me and he encouraged me and so anyway, I agreed to do this film. So the final scene, they had to have Cassavetes blow up, and they came up with a very ingenious way of doing it. It seems to be all one shot. There was no CGI at the time. This was 1978, I guess. And what they did was very ingenious. They had Cassavetes start to have a sort of a spasmodic shake uh, when Amy Irving sort of, I haven't seen it in a long time, but she, I guess she's throwing her power at him. He starts to uh, tremble, and he grabs his throat, and he looks like he's having some kind of fit, and then he blows up. Well, the way they did that was, as he's trembling, there's a floor lamp that he's, that's standing next to where he is. And in, as part of his fit, his hand bumps into this floor lamp, and it falls over. When they shot it, the floor lamp was attached to a hinge on the floor, so it fell in a very controlled uh, arc. It could only f fall over in one direction. And what they did was they attached a camera with a strobe to a, a switch that was triggered by the lamp falling over. So as the lamp fell over, it photographed Cassavetes at that very moment. Then the visual effects department, special effects department, uh, built a dummy copying that exact pose. And uh, it was a very lifelike uh, recreation of Cassavetes in that single frame that was captured by the strobe with the light falling to the ground. Then they put the dummy back on the set next to the light and they knocked over the light again, but this time, rather than triggering a strobe, the light falling over triggered the explosion. And they filmed it with about 10 cameras, I think. And the cameras were going, some were going at, at sound speed and some were going in slow motion, varying degrees of slow motion. There were angles from every angle, including from above. So that's how we did it. And as the as the light falls over, I made a match cut, so it seems to be an unbroken shot. But of course, at the moment that the lamp gets to the critical point, we switch from 
the live Cassavetes to the dummy Cassavetes as he explodes. So it seems to be a continuous action. Tom Jacobson, the producer of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, stated that John Hughes shoots a lot of coverage. Yes. Most of the movie was done in post-production. And this is, once again, it's a, the movie's a comedy, but it's also a thriller. Is that what you brought to the table in the cutting room? Uh, I don't really understand the thriller aspect of Ferris. Well, he's trying to get back before, you know, the, he's trying to get away from Principal Rooney, and it has all this, and he's trying oh, to get yeah. back to the yeah. Yeah, house well, before yeah. his parents discover him. Right, right, right. I guess that's a thriller. Um, suspense. There's suspense. Well, no, I mean, that was that was built in. The, the real challenge of uh, Ferris was bringing it down to size. The original cut was two hours and 45 minutes which is the longest first cut I had ever done up to that point. And it was really a question of uh, shaping the film and taking out the unessential elements. And, and uh, there were the whole scenes that were dropped, and many of them were monologues directed to the camera because there's a limit to how much of that you can have in a movie and, and not have it be tiresome. So that was part of it. And the other part of it was that because the action all took place in one day, we never had to worry about costume changes in the actors. We could take scenes, move them around, and there was no plot, really, during the course of the day. The day's events could, could take place in any order. So part of the solution to the film was revising the order of the events in the day to, to make it build properly so that the, the parade sequence was originally supposed to take place earlier in the day takes place at the very end of the day, which made sense because it was the most, you know, you would, you would ordinarily you would think that it would be your first instinct would be to structure the day so that the, the biggest event happens at the end of it, but it was not written that way, but we did make it that way in the film. Final question, you were yes. talking about your musicals. You've cut musical numbers in several movies, Twist and Shout and Ferris Bueller and Footloose and Ray and Phantom of the Paradise. I even right. like The Dancing Gypsy and King of the Gypsies. Um, right. Would you consider them sort of like these musical numbers as like pure cinema? The, the phrase pure cinema is one that De Palma and I used to talk about in terms of he had this sort of notion of an ideal kind of filmmaking in which you told the story through uh, images and sounds and music, but didn't rely on words. So that was his idea of pure cinema, which I guess is sort of um, closest to uh, silent, silent filmmaking. There are instances of, you know, in, in Brian's movies, there's always these uh, I want to call them production, production numbers, but, you know, there's sort of a signature uh, sequence which is very visual and tells the story entirely through the succession of images and the action and so forth. It's not the, quite the same as an action sequence where, where there are no words either, but it's more in terms of building story through carefully chosen angles on the action so that you see th Brian's approach is very much reliant on point-of-view shots so that you see 
the action through the eyes of the characters in the film and enables you to understand what's going through their minds. So the individual shots function as, you know, analogous to words in a sentence so that the close-up of the actor becomes the subject of the sentence and then the point-of-view shot becomes the, you know, he looks, he sees, you see what he sees, and then you cut back to his reaction to see how he reacts to that. So it's sort of like words in a sentence, the the, the close-up, he looks, he sees, he reacts, are like a sentence uh, composed of visual elements. The sequence that comes to mind most readily in films not Brian De Palma's, in which we achieved what Brian called pure cinema, was the scene in Ray where young Ray trips and falls and he calls to his mother, who's there, but doesn't come to his help. And she watches him as he sort of, he susses out what's, where he is and understands, starts to understand his environment just by using his ears. It also happens to be a very moving sequence, but it's, it's a sequence told through a succession of images where you understand exactly what's going on in terms of of the mother employing tough love, in a sense, and not coming to his help, and seeing the boy discover that he had the ability to operate without her help. And, you know, the musical numbers are among my favorite scenes, because when I was young, I used to love to dance, and for me, cutting musical numbers is like dancing. It's like dancing with with the images. If you can say that choreography is the organization of movement through three-dimensional space uh, over time against music or something, then editing a musical number is like organizing movement on a two-dimensional screen against music over time. So there's a very strong relationship between choreography and film editing. The opening sequence of Footloose, the main title, is an example of what I call choreography, because I think I used something like 20 or 22 different pairs of feet in that montage, and the shoot had employed 150 different pairs of feet. So the trick was to go through the 150 dancers and find the 20 or 22 or so who did the steps that worked best with the music in the context of the song at that moment. So the shape of the dance was, you know, was something that I came up with in the in the cutting. So for me, cutting to music and dancing, very much the same thing. I would like to thank Paul Hirsch for granting us the interview. Remember, come to the downtown public library on Saturday. April 9th, 2016 at 2 p.m. on 615 Church Street to see the source code. Today's music is from Sisters by Bernard Herman.